Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. On today's show, we're going to talk about innovation and the sort of inventive genius we need to hit climate targets. We now have less than nine years to dramatically reduce carbon emissions to keep a lid on global warming, and much rests on humanity's ability to find and fund the right technologies that will help us avoid the worst consequences of climate change. Joining me to talk about which technologies we need to fight the climate crisis is Hendrik Tiesinger, the outgoing co-founder and chief strategy officer of New Energy Nexus, a clean energy startup accelerator headquartered in California. Tiesinger is an experienced supporter of clean energy entrepreneurs and innovators, and over his career has helped hundreds of startups develop solutions to address climate change. Welcome to the podcast, Hendrik. Thank you. Um... Robin, for having me here. So, yeah, genuine pleasure to have you on the show, Hendrik, to talk about an exciting topic, innovation and sustainability. Now, you're one of the co-founders of New Energy Nexus, which supports clean energy entrepreneurs with funds um, and accelerators. Now, um, the first question I want to ask you is, what are the sort of innovations in sustainability at the moment that excite you the most? Sure. Um, happy to give a few examples. And I'm actually going to give you a somewhat boring example. Um, I think there's four kind of core technologies that are really uh, revolutionizing the world right now, particularly in clean energy. And, and none of them will be new to your uh, listeners, maybe one. Um, so one is, you know, uh, solar panels, um, lithium-ion batteries and wind generators, electricity generators and digitization. And uh, I'm mentioning those four because we could tend to overlook them, but they're really revolutionary technologies that have been around uh, and are scaling up really rapidly. Um, over the past 10 years, all these technologies have uh, gotten cheaper between 60 to 80%. And over the next decade, the same cost curve will continue. Uh, and so we see solar and wind competing on price with coal, gas, and, and certainly nuclear. Um, so I think that's the really exciting trend that there is a technological disruption happening right now in the energy sector. Um, and the fourth element that I briefly mentioned is digitization. So as we see, you know, um, the internet and, and uh, eating up the entire world, the same thing ha- is happening in uh, the energy sector. So using, you know, machine learning, um, AI and, and similar technologies to um, optimize systems, to basically do demand response, to manage this entire new energy system that is, uh, you know, emerging where electric vehicles, fridges, power plants, windmills, solar panels, batteries all have to communicate with each other and optimize the usage and storage at every second. So digitization and data is a very big part of, of this transformation. Um, yeah. Fascinating area. Now, um, you touched on it a little bit there, but with an issue like decarbonisation, right, um, often the most powerful solutions uh, are the simplest, like, for example, improving energy efficiency. Now, I want to ask you if if venture capitalists and VCs are sometimes seduced by the new and the sexy innovations, are sometimes ignoring the more mundane solutions that don't grab headlines, but are really effective. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely the case. Um, you know, particular energy efficiency, it's, um, you know, not, not so exciting or so sexy and it often, often requires a, a, a bit of analysis. Um, so yes, I think, 
you know, decarbonization, like I said, the technologies that I mentioned, as well as energy efficiency. Um, if you particularly in particular talk to impact investors, um, they're looking for, you know, oceans and plastics, which are the kind of the topic of the day. And VCs, they might be, you know, more interested in, you know, the latest e-commerce or, you know, talk, talk, the TikTok, um, you know, kind of betraying my age here, TikTok kind of like app. Um, yeah. So, yes, um, the kind of technologies that they are um, actually require, um, you know, in a kind of more uh, mature markets, they require a lot of actually project financing and that it's becoming available on large scale in like Europe and the US, but particularly here in Southeast Asia, where uh, with New Energy Nexus, we're, we did a lot of work uh, on creating startups. Um, yeah, investors are not particularly interested in like building startups in the clean energy sector because it's on the one hand not perceived to be cutting edge enough or impactful enough where it's in effect one more, one of the most you know impactful technologies to work on to create jobs as well as uh, to you know combat climate change. Now, one area um, that's talked about quite a lot in decarbonization is the technology known as uh, carbon capture use and storage. Now, we've written a bit about that. Now, it looks like hugely ambitious and also unproven technology. Um, but um, to meet the Paris Agreement, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, we'll need to use this technology which involves sucking carbon out of the atmosphere um, to meet these targets. What's your view, Hendrik, on carbon capture, use and storage? Um, is yeah. there much needed innovation or sort of pie-in-the-sky thinking at the moment? So, so I think um, to reach the climate goals, um, I don't think actually we need carbon capture. Uh, we obviously need to stop putting carbon in the air as soon as possible, and we have the technologies to close down you know, coal power plants, gas fire power plants, uh, combustion, internal combustion engine cars. We can we can stop using that at a very rapid pace. Actually, um, a writer and the a theorist around clean energy, Tony Sipa, he wrote his book called Clean Disruption. He just, with a few other people, put out a statement where they said by 2030, we can actually el electrify uh, or power the entire electrical system with 100% uh, renewables. And by 2035, all the other sectors like mobility and heavy industry. So there's actually a lot more possible with our current technologies and the adoption curves are a lot faster than most people are realizing. Um, so from that point of view, if you want to capture carbon because you're putting carbon in the air, that seems like, uh, you know, um, there's much better ways to do it just by not, you know, burning the carbon in the first place. Um, then there's a second question. Let's say we, you know, we, we reach those ambitious goals that Tony Siba and others are proposing by 2030 and 2035. Is there still too much carbon in the air and how are we going to like take that out? Because, you know, we have a, a surplus of carbon that will continue warming up the atmosphere. Um, there's, there are proposals to have certain technologies to suck it out. Um, I think those are only relevant once you have 100% renewable or clean and, uh, power system, because otherwise you, you burn again carbon to suck it out. Um, but there's a lot to be gained uh, with just, you know, reforestation, don't cut down forests, don't burn down, you know, like uh, here in, like in Indonesia, Malaysia, massive rainforests for uh, palm oil. Uh, mangrove forests apparently suck up a lot of carbon out of the air. So there's, I think, a lot more land use type solutions. Uh, that don't actually require, you know, new technological uh, breakthroughs, but require policy changes, financial incentives, uh, you know, capacity building amongst farmers and forest forest manage management. Um, so I, personally, I don't think it's the the solution. Uh, you know, 
Elon Musk just put out the uh, 100 million price for it. Um, I think Elon's already doing enough with creating electric vehicles and batteries and all of that. Uh, so um, I don't think it's that of a necessary technology at this stage. Interesting, right. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, or do chime in on this, uh, Hendrik, but often the people that are talking about carbon capture technologies seem to be the old school industries that um, want to keep on burning um, fossil fuels. So d developing that um, technology and allows them to, to stay business as usual, right? And just suck out um, what they're putting into the atmosphere. That's um, true. I mean, yeah, the coal industry has been proposing this for a while, oil and gas. So I'm actually like interested why Elon Musk is proposing this. Um, you know, I think he's more interested in you know, the kind of carbon capture that takes carbon out of the atmosphere rather than capturing it at a tailpipe of, of a power plant or a car um, to reduce, you know, the carbon that's already in the air. Um, but yes, it's usually proposed by, you know, incumbents and it's hugely expensive. And with, you know, costs falling for renewables, it's, it's not competitive at all. Interesting area, nonetheless. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to get inside the mind of Elon Musk, wouldn't it? And, and try and understand a bit more um, where these ideas come from, because he is- Equally uh, why he's putting, uh, you know, 1.5 billion into uh, Bitcoin last night. Um, let's be curious to find out what, what he was thinking there. Yeah, what's your view on that? Why do you think he's, he's thinking along those lines? Um, I think Elon is interested in disruption and, and um, that's why he's, he's making this move, promoting an alternative, you know, kind of monetary or, or, or currency system. I think from uh, what I've been reading up from a corporate treasury point of view, you don't necessarily want you to put, you know, your kind of your everyday cash in such a speculative asset and, you know, rather put it just in, you know, money markets and secure bonds and things like that. So I think he's, he's making a statement um, and trying to, you know, um, be out there in a way and, um, so that's, that's interesting in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he does seem to want to, whichever um, area that he's thinking about, he tends to want to be disruptive right now. I think that's the way, that, the way his, um, his brain works. But we digress slightly, Hendrik. So, so going back, you mentioned their um, nature-based solutions. Now, um, there's an awful lot of money pouring into nature-based solutions, and you mentioned a few of them there, restoring mangrove forests, um, tree planting schemes, reforestation. Um, what's your view at the moment on the amount of money going into these solutions and where um, the most effective money, uh, uh, most effective use of that money will be? Um, to be honest, I'm, I'm not an expert. Um, yeah, my field I've been working on over the last kind of seven, six, seven years is clean energy. Um, I, I know a lot is possible here and also it doesn't have to cost much. Um, with the right policy changes and incentives. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of all I can say about it. Okay. Um, okay, fair enough. Now, I want to ask you also about, again, I'm not sure if you have an opinion on this, which is fair enough, but um, what do you make of the numerous net zero targets that companies and governments are setting, right? Um, and I just want to ask you, do um, from your perspective, do we have the technology available at the moment to help these companies and governments meet these targets? Um, yes, yeah, certainly. And um, I think this goes back a little bit to what I was referring to earlier. Um, the statement that was put out today about, you know, reaching 100% renewables for the power system 
by 2030 and for the rest of the economy by 2035. So there is there's actually, you know, a lot of these deadlines, they're set based on studies that were done, say, five years ago, 10 years ago. And, you know, it takes a while before, you know, campaigners convince legislators to, uh, you know, set these goals. You know, there's like a 10, 15 year lag between between the beginning and the end. And so if we look today at what, you know, it's possible with renewables and how cheap they've become and how fast they're being adopted, um, actually much more ambitious targets could be possible. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the 2050 net zero targets have been kind of adopted in China and Europe and, uh, you know, the Paris Agreement and the US just joined really helps with setting, you know, getting everybody focused in the same direction and releasing a lot of stimulus money and positive regulation that will, you know, create this self-reinforcing cycle of cheaper and cheaper renewables, um, greater and greater demands and larger and larger, more like more and more economies of scale. Um, so it's it's definitely uh, going to help, but probably we, we can see over the next years that people are going to make those targets more ambitious. Absolutely. It's exciting, isn't it? We're seeing also, uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, China, but also seen Korea and Japan make uh, net zero ambition uh, targets. So it's certainly an exciting space. I want to ask you a bit about um, greenwash in um, sustainability innovation, Hendrik. So lots of money pouring into the sector, um, and which is inevitable, right? There'll be some claims that are, are more genuine than others about how effective technology is. Um, what's your thoughts on how to tell greenwash in, in this space and how to bet on the right horses? Um, yeah, so we're um, uh, at, at, New, at New Energy Nexus, we are, we're 100% kind of clean energy and renewable focused. Um, so there is, um, that gives you a very kind of clear uh, criteria on what is real and what isn't, you know, kind of as soon as you get into biofuels and various kind of related you know, forms of technologies, it gets very blurry in terms of what is really, you know, the environmental impact because it often involves, you know, you have these examples of power plants in Europe that are, you know, using wood from forests in Canada that are shipped across and, and obviously that that can't make any, it doesn't make any sense from a kind of like physics point of view and how much energy you're using. Uh, so if you really just focus on 100% renewables, you know, solar, wind, in some cases, hydro or geothermal, you're not going to have any mistakes. There are issues in the supply chain, um, you know, including the batteries and like cobalt and things like that. Uh, but these issues, they're, they're not unsolvable. And like, like the leading producers and manufacturers, they, they take responsibility. They sort of look to take back you know, uh, used products. Um, so there's no in inherent technological kind of like limitation to, you know, recycling and, and, and making sure that you treat your suppliers and, and the environment in the right way, especially in this sector that needs to be, you know, kind of required. Um, so that makes it relatively easy. I think um, there's other, you know, um, sectors where, you know, around, particularly around social issues, it's much harder to kind of like, you know, sometimes guarantee whether like the labor involved and the conditions of people um, and you know doing all the reporting and requirements on that um, so there, there's a lot more um, you know uh, out there that, that, that can uh, get blurry um, so that's why we kind of stay kind of uh, you know, clear on, on clean energy okay great stuff now clean energy I want to ask you if you are down to your last dollar or if you had a certain pot of money and you had to bet on one area that, that points to, I guess, the most effective future for, for clean energy. 
and where would it be? And we've written a bit about um, different types of renewables recently uh, on Eco Business, Hendrik, floating winds, new types of batteries. Um, yeah, so, so where would you focus um, your money? Uh, in, um, which, which would you bet on? I would actually bet on, on solar. Um, it's the most versatile technology. You know, you can have a solar, even back in the day, you know, when you, know, you and I were in school, you had calculators with tiny little solar panel panels on it, right? Um, mm. And so it goes from that tiny scale up to, you know, gigawatts. I think two or three gigawatts is the current largest ones out there in the world, and potentially, but soon even bigger. So it's super versatile. It can be used in any, you know, on any scale in any country, even like Germany, which is, you know, it, uh, Germany has one of the largest uh, uh, solar base in its country, um, but it's not a sunny country at all, you know, um, and so, it's the technology that's most versatile uh, and can be used in all kinds of contexts and all kinds of scales, including, you know, energy access to rural communities. Uh, but New Energy Nexus, we do some of that work in Indonesia um, and also in Uganda. So it's the most versatile technology. And one of the interesting things I learned the other day is that, um, you know, obviously intermittency is a problem. Like when the sun doesn't shine, you don't have energy. And the way to balance that out is with, the, on one hand, demand response. So making sure that, that people like minimize, say, air conditioners or cooling or other uh, technologies when there's peak demand. The other one's batteries. Um, but you would you would assume that you'd want to have equal amounts in like uh, solar capacity as well as storage and demand response capacity. But what, what they're finding out is that actually if you have three, four times of the solar capacity, you need a lot less storage. So you could, it's better to build a lot kind of surplus capacity of solar um, to kind of even out the intermittency rather than to build a lot of storage uh, just because it's cheaper to build more solar rather than, um, you know, more than some ion batteries. Um, so again, that points to, you know, this one technology being actually the, the breakthrough technology. It's kind of the microchip of, of energy in a way, uh, the way the microchip, you know, transformed computers and, and the whole world. Um, that's how I would uh, um, see solar as well. Interesting. So bet on solar at the moment. It's certainly the yeah. one that among the clean energy technologies, the one that seems to be getting cheaper, the fastest, um, correct me if I'm wrong, perhaps for those reasons that investors are um, focusing their energies and, and money on solar. Um, now, uh, last question for you, Hendrik. So I want to ask you how hopeful you are as a person, right? And, and whether we are as a, as, a, as, a, as a race, as a human race, innovating fast enough to meet climate goals. Um, are you optimistic? Um, so I'm, I'm kind of a pessimist and an optimist at the same time. Um, so if you look at where, you know, where we are with the climate, we are already, I think, close to one degree over the historical average, soon probably hitting one and a half. Um, you know, like if we would stop emitting carbon tomorrow, we would still have climate change because of the amount of carbon we already put in the atmosphere. And if we, the day after tomorrow, would, um, you know, have all this carbon capture technology that Elon Musk wants, and we would suck all the surplus carbon out to be, go back to where it was, say, you know, 100 years ago, uh, we would still have residual heat in the oceans that would heat, you know, warm our atmosphere because the oceans have sucked up a lot of heat over the last decades. Um, so no matter what we do technologically, even if we would do it all tomorrow, we're kind of, you know, a little bit screwed because a lot of these changes have already put, been put in motion and they can't just be turned back. 
Um, and um, so that's, you know, kind of the pessimism that I have. And, you know, the, the, the longer we take, you know, if we say by 2050, that's, that's a long time from now. And it's still a lot of emissions going into the atmosphere. Um, so and from that point of view, I'm pessimistic. I think we're going to have to adapt in many places, you know, with all the different weather effects that will be in different uh, geographies. Uh, where I'm optimistic is that, you know, like we have the technology and I've been kind of like repeating myself throughout this podcast. Um, we can do a lot of this by 2030 um, and, you know, cut our emissions dramatically really fast in a way that's actually cheaper for the economy if everybody involved creates more jobs. Uh, basically, there's only positives to transitioning faster than slower. Um, and so that makes me positive that, you know, whatever we need to do to pull the brake, we can. And so we'll see still, you know, let's say by 2030, 2035, we actually have gone to a much faster transition than everybody's expecting. We'll still see, a, you know, significant climate effects, but we've, you know, turned the ship around. So um, that's the positive news. Great to leave it on a positive note. Uh, Hendrik, thank you so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Thank you, Robin, for having me. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.